11. Invested with what divine qualities Sui Bog enjoys, it is impossible to say, but, if the ever lived, he has long been adorned with ideal qualities and virtues which he never possessed. The conception of the powerful ancestral ghost has been heightened and adorned with some novel attributes of power, the conception of the infinite has not been degraded, by forgetfulness of language, to the estate of an ancestral ghost with a game leg, if this view be correct, myth is the result of thought, far more than of a disease of language, the comparative importance of language and thought was settled long ago, in our sense, by no less a person than Pragapati, the Sanskrit master of life. Now a dispute once took place between mind and speech, as to which was the better of the two. Both mind and speech said, I am excellent. Mind said, Surely I am better than thou, for thou dost not speak anything that is not understood by me, and since thou art only an imitator of what is done by me and a follower in my wake, I am surely better than thou. Speech said, Surely I am better than thou, for what thou knowest I make known, I communicate. They went to appeal to Pragapati for his decision. He Pragapati decided in favor of mind, saying to speech, Mind is indeed better than thou, for thou art an imitator of its deeds, and a follower in its wake, and inferior. Surely, is he who imitates his better's deeds, and follows in his wake? So saith the Siddhapada Brahmana, Fetishism and the Infinite. What is the true place of fetishism? To use a common but unscientific term, in the history of religious evolution, some theorists have made fetishism, that is to say, the adoration of odds and ends with which they have confused the worship of animals, of mountains, and even of the earth, the first moment in the development of worship. Others, again, think that fetishism is a corruption of religion, in Africa, as elsewhere. The latter is the opinion of Mr. Max Muller, who has stated it in his Hibbert lectures, on the origin and growth of religion, especially as illustrated by the religions of India. It seems probable that there is a middle position between these two extremes. Students may hold that we hardly know enough to justify us in talking about the origin of religion, while at the same time they may believe that fetishism is one of the earliest traceable steps by which men climb to higher conceptions of the supernatural. Meanwhile Mr. Max Muller supports his own theory, that fetishism is a parasitical growth, a corruption of religion, by arguments mainly drawn from historical study of savage creeds and from the ancient religious documents of India. These documents are to English investigators ignorant of Sanskrit a book sealed with seven seals. The Vedas are interpreted in very different ways by different Oriental scholars. It does not yet appear to be known whether a certain word in the Vedic funeral service means goat or soul. Mr. Max Muller's rendering is certain to have the first claim on English readers and therefore it is desirable to investigate the conclusions which he draws from his Vedic studies. The ordinary anthropologist must first, however, lodge a protest against the tendency to look for primitive matter in the Vedas. They are the elaborate hymns of a specially trained set of poets and philosophers, living in an age almost of civilization. They can therefore contain little testimony as to what man, while still primitive, thought about God, the world, and the soul. One might as well look for the first germs of religion, for primitive religion strictly so called, in hymns ancient and modern as in the Vedas, it is chiefly, however, by way of deductions from the Vedas, that Mr. Max Muller arrives at ideas which may be briefly and broadly stated thus, he inclines to derive religion from man's sense of the infinite, as awakened by natural objects calculated to stir that sense, 
our position island on the other hand, that the germs of the religious sense in early man are developed, not so much by the vision of the infinite, as by the idea of power, early religions, in short, are selfish, not disinterested, the worshipper is not contemplative, so much as eager to gain something to his advantage, in fetishes, he ignorantly recognizes something that possesses power of an abnormal sort, and the train of ideas which leads him to believe in and to treasure fetishes is one among the earliest springs of religious belief. Mr. Muller's opinion is the very reverse, he believes that a contemplative and disinterested emotion in the presence of the infinite, or of anything that suggests infinitude or is mistaken for the infinite, begets human religion, while of this religion fetishism is a later corruption. In treating of fetishism Mr. Muller is obliged to criticize the system of de Brosses, who introduced this rather unfortunate term to science, in an admirable work, Le Cult de Dieu Fetishes 1760, we call the work admirable, because, considering the contemporary state of knowledge and speculation, de Brosses's book is brilliant, original, and only now and then rash or confused, Mr. Muller says that de Brosses holds that all nations had to begin with fetishism, to be followed afterwards by polytheism and monotheism. This sentence would lead some readers to suppose that de Brosses, in his speculations, was looking for the origin of religion, but, in reality, his work is a mere attempt to explain a certain element in ancient religion and mythology. De Brosses was well aware that heathen religions were a complex mass, a concretion of many materials. He admits the existence of regard for the spirits of the dead as one factor. He gives Sabiism a place as another. But what chiefly puzzles him, and what he chiefly tries to explain, is the worship of odds and ends of rubbish, and the adoration of animals, mountains, trees, the Sunday and so forth. When he masses all these worships together, and proposes to call them all fetishism a term derived from the Portuguese word for a talisman, de Brosses is distinctly unscientific. But de Brosses is distinctly scientific when he attempts to explain the animal worship of Egypt, and the respect paid by Greeks and Romans to shapeless stones, as survivals of older savage practices. The position of de Brosses is this, old mythology and religion are a tissue of many threads, sabiism, adoration of the dead, mythopoeic fancy, have their part in the fabric, among many African tribes, a form of theism, Islamite or Christian, or self-developed is superimposed on a mass of earlier superstitions. Among these superstitions, is the worship of animals and plants, and the cult of rough stones and of odds and ends of matter. What is the origin of this element, so prominent in the religion of Egypt, and present, if less conspicuous, in the most ancient temples of Greece? It is the survival, answers de Brosses, of ancient practices like those of the tutored peoples, as Brazilians, Samoyeds, Negroes, whom the Egyptians and Pelasgians once resembled in lack of culture. This, briefly stated, is the hypothesis of de Brosses. If he had possessed our wider information, he would have known that, among savage races, the worships of the stars, of the dead, and of plants and animals, are interlaced by the strange metaphysical processes of wild men. He would, perhaps, have kept the supernatural element in magical stones, feathers, shells, and so on. Apart from the triple thread of sadism, ghost worship, and totemism, with its later development into the regular worship of plants and animals, it must be recognized, however, that de Brosses was perfectly well aware of the confused and manifold character of early religion. 
he had a clear view of the truth that what the religious instinct has once grasped, it does not, as a rule, abandon, but subordinates or disguises, when it reaches higher ideas, and the averse, again and again, that men laid hold of the coarser and more material objects of worship, while they themselves were coarse and dull, and that, as civilization advanced, they, as a rule, subordinated and disguised the ruder factors in their system. Here it is that Mr. Max Muller differs from de Brusses. He holds that the adoration of stones, feathers, shells, and as I understand him the worship of animals are, even among the races of Africa, a corruption of an earlier and purer religion, a parasitical development of religion. However, Mr. Max Muller himself held for a long time what he calls de Brusses's theory of fetishism. What made him throw the theory overboard? It was the fact that, while in the earliest accessible documents of religious thought we look in vain for any very clear traces of fetishism, they become more and more frequent everywhere in the later stages of religious development, and are certainly more visible in the later corruptions of the Indian religion, beginning with the Afarvana, than in the earliest hymns of the Rigveda. Now, by the earliest accessible documents of religious thought, Professor Max Muller means the hymns of the Rigveda. These hymns are composed in the most elaborate meter, by sages of old repute, who, I presume, occupied a position not unlike that of the singers and seers of Israel. They lived in an age of tolerably advanced cultivation. They had wide geographical knowledge. They had settled government. They dwelt in states. They had wealth of gold, of grain, and of domesticated animals. Among the metals, they were acquainted with that which in most countries, has been the latest work they used iron poles in their chariots. How then can the hymns of the most enlightened singers of a race thus far developed be called the earliest religious documents? Oldest they may be, the oldest that are accessible, but that is a very different thing. How can we possibly argue that what is absent in these hymns, is absent because it had not yet come into existence? Is it not the very office of P.I. that at Phoebo did Nilocuti to purify religion? to cover up decently its rude shapes, as the unhewn stone was concealed in the fane of Apollo of Delos, if the race whose noblest and oldest extant hymns were are pure, exhibits traces of fetishism in its later documents, may not that as easily result from a recrudescence as from a corruption? Professor Max Muller has still, moreover, to explain how the process of corruption which introduced the same fetishistic practices among Samoyeds, Brazilians, Cathars, and the people of the Afarbana Veda came to be everywhere identical in its results. Here an argument often urged against the anthropological method may be shortly disposed of. You examine savages, people say. But how do you know that these savages were not once much more cultivated, that their whole mode of life, religion and all, is not debased and decadent from an earlier standard? Mr. Muller glances at this argument, which, however, cannot serve his purpose. Mr. Muller has recognized that savage, or nomadic, languages represent a much earlier state of language than anything that we find, for example, in the oldest Hebrew or Sanskrit texts. For this reason, he says, the study of what I call nomad languages, as distinguished from state languages, becomes so instructive, we see in them what we can no longer expect to see even in the most ancient Sanskrit or Hebrew. We watch the childhood of language with all its childish freaks. Yes, adds the anthropologist, and for this reason the study of savage religions, as distinguished from state religions, becomes so instructive.
we see in them what we can no longer expect to see even in the most ancient Sanskrit or Hebrew faiths. We watch the childhood of religion with all its childish freaks. If this reasoning be sound when the Kathir tongue is contrasted with ancient Sanskrit, it should be sound when the Kathir faith is compared with the Vedic faith. By parity of reasoning, the religious beliefs of peoples as much less advanced than the Kathirs as the Kathirs are less advanced than the Vedic peoples, should be still nearer the infancy of faith, still nearer the beginning. We have been occupied, perhaps, too long with de Brusses and our apology for de Brusses. Let us now examine, as shortly as possible, Mr. Max Muller's reasons for denying that fetishism is a primitive form of religion, the negative side of his argument being thus disposed of. It will then be our business to consider one his psychological theory of the subjective element in religion, and to his account of the growth of Indian religion. The conclusion of the essay will be concerned with demonstrating that Mr. Max Muller's system assigns little or no place to the superstitious beliefs without which, in other countries than India, society could not have come into organized existence. In his polemic against fetishism, it is not always very easy to see against whom Mr. Muller is contending. It is one thing to say that fetishism is a primitive form of religion, and quite another to say that it is the very beginning of all religion. Occasionally he attacks the conscient theory, which, I think, is not now held by many people who study the history of man, and which I am not concerned to defend. He says that the Portuguese navigators who discovered among the Negroes no other trace of any religious worship except what they called the worship of Fidicos concluded that this was the whole of the religion of the Negroes page 61. Mr. Muller then goes on to prove that no religion consists of fetishism only, choosing his examples of higher elements in Negro religion from the collections of weights. It is difficult to see what bearing this has on his argument. De Brosses page 20 shows that he, at least, was well aware that many Negro tribes have higher conceptions of the deity than any which are implied in fetish worship. Even if no tribe in the world is exclusively devoted to fetishes, the argument makes no progress. Perhaps no extant tribe is in the way of using unpolished stone weapons and no others. But it does not follow that unpolished stone weapons are not primitive. It is just as easy to maintain that the purer ideas have, by this time, been reached by aid of the stepping stones of the grocer, as that the grocer are the corruption of the purer. Mr. Max Muller constantly asserts that the human mind advanced by small and timid steps from what is intelligible, to what is at first sight almost beyond comprehension page 126. Among the objects which aided man to take these small and timid steps, he reckons rivers and trees, which excited, he says, religious awe. What he will not suppose is that the earliest small and timid steps were not unaided by such objects as the fetishist treasures stones, shells and so forth, which suggest no idea of infinity, stocks he will admit, but not, if he can help it, stones, of the sort that Negroes and Kankas and other tribes use as fetishes, his reason island that he does not see how the scraps of the fetishist can appeal to the feeling of the infinite, which feeling island in his theory, the basis of religion, after maintaining what is readily granted that Negroes have a religion composed of many elements, Mr. Muller tries to discredit the evidence about the creeds of savages, and discourses on the many-minute shades of progress which exist among tribes too often lumped together as if they were all in the same condition. Here he will have all scientific students of savage life on his side. It remains true, however, that certain elements of savage practice, fetishism being one of them, are practically ubiquitous. Thus, 
when Mr. Muller speaks of the influence of public opinion in biasing the narrative of travelers, we must not forget that the strongest evidence about savage practice is derived from the undesigned coincidence of the testimonies of all sorts of men, in all ages, and all conditions of public opinion. Illiterate men, ignorant of the writings of each other, bring the same reports from various quarters of the globe, wrote Miller of Glasgow, when sailors, merchants, missionaries, described, as matters unprecedented and unheard of, such institutions as polyandry, totemism, and so forth, the evidence is so strong, because the witnesses are so astonished, they do not know that anyone but themselves has ever noticed the curious facts before their eyes, and when Mr. Muller tries to make the testimony about savage faith still more untrustworthy, by talking of the absence of recognized authority among savages, do not let us forget that custom Greek is a recognized authority, and that the punishment of death is inflicted for transgression of certain rules. These rules, generally speaking, are of a religious nature, and the religion to which they testify is of the sort known to vaguely as fetishistic. Let us keep steadily before our minds, when people talk of lack of evidence, that we have two of the strongest sorts of evidence in the world for the kind of religion which least suits Mr. Muller's argument one the undesigned coincidences of testimony to the irrefutable witness and sanction of elementary criminal law. Mr. Muller's own evidence is that much disputed work, where all men see what they want to see, as in the clouds, and where many see systematized fetishism the beta. The first step in Mr. Max Muller's polemic was the assertion that fetishism is nowhere unmixed. We have seen that the fact is capable of an interpretation that will suit either side. Stages of culture overlap each other. The second step in his polemic was the effort to damage the evidence. We have seen that we have as good evidence as can be desired. In the third place he asks, what are the antecedents of fetish worship? He appears to conceive himself to be arguing with persons page 127 who have taken for granted that every human being was miraculously endowed with the concept of what forms the predicate of every fetish. Call it power, spirit, or God, if there are reasoners so feeble. They must be left to the punishment inflicted by Mr. Muller. On the other hand, students who regard the growth of the idea of power, which is the predicate of every fetish, as a slow process, as the result of various impressions and trains of early half-conscious reasoning, cannot be disposed of by the charge that they think that every human being was miraculously endowed with any concept whatever. They, at least, will agree with Mr. Max Muller that there are fetishes and fetishes, that to one reverence is assigned for one reason, to another for another. Unfortunately, it is less easy to admit that Mr. Max Muller has been happy in his choice of ancient instances. He writes page 99, Sometimes a stock or a stone was worshipped because it was a forsaken altar or an ancient place of judgment. Sometimes because it marked the place of a great battle or a murder, or the burial of a king. Here he refers to Pausanias. Book I-28. 5 and VII. 13, 3. In both of these passages, Pausanias, it is true, mentions stones in the first passage stones on which men stood Greek, in the second, barrows heaped up in honor of men who fell in battle, in neither case, however, do I find anything to show that the stones were worshipped, these stones, then, have no more to do with the argument than the milestones which certainly exist on the Dover Road but which are not the objects of superstitious reverence. No, the fetish stones of Greece were those which occupied the holy of holies of the most ancient temples. 
the mysterious things within dark cedar or cypress groves, to which men were hardly admitted, they were the stones and blocks which bore the names of gods, Hera, or Apollo, names perhaps given, as de Brussus says, to the old fetishistic objects of worship, after the anthropomorphic gods entered Hellas, this, at least is the natural conclusion from the fact that the Apollo and Hera of a touched wood or stone were confessedly the oldest, religion, possessing an old fetish did not run the risk of breaking the run of luck by discarding it, but wisely retained and renamed it, Mr. Max Muller says that the unhewn lump may indicate a higher power of abstraction than the wordership paid to the word Cophidius, but in that case all the savage adorers of rough stones may be in a stage of more abstract thought than these contemporaries of Phidias who, had such very hard work to make Greek thought abstract. Mr. Muller founds a very curious argument on what he calls the ubiquity of fetishism. Like de Brusses, he compiles from Pausanias a list of the rude stones worshipped by the early Greeks. He mentions various examples of fetishistic superstitions in Rome. He detects the fetishism of popular Catholicism, and of Russian Orthodoxy among the peasants. Here, he cries, in religions the history of which is known to us. Fetishism is secondary, and why should fetishes in Africa, where we do not know the earlier development of religion, be considered as primary? What a singular argument. According to Pausanias, this fetishism if fetishism it is was primary. In Greece, the oldest temples, in their holiest place, held the oldest fetish. In Rome, it is at least probable that fetishism, as in Greece, was partly a survival partly a new growth from the primal root of human superstitions, as to Catholicism, the records of councils, the invectives of the church, show us that, from the beginning, the secondary religion in point of time, the religion of the church, labored vainly to suppress, and had in part to tolerate, the primary religion of childish superstitions, the documents are before the world, as to the Russians, the history of their conversion is pretty well known, Jaroslav, or Vladimir, or some other evangelist, had whole villages baptized in groups, and the pagan peasants naturally kept up their primary semi-savage ways of thought and worship, under the secondary varnish of orthodoxy, in all Mr. Max Muller's examples, then, fetishism turns out to be primary in point of time, secondary only, as subordinate to some later development of faith, or to some lately superimposed religion, accepting his statement that fetishism is ubiquitous, we have the most powerful a priori argument that fetishism is primitive. As religions become developed they are differentiated, it only fetishism that you find the same everywhere. Thus the bow and arrow have a wide range of distribution, the musket, one not so wide, the Martini Henry rifle. A still narrower range, it is the primitive stone weapons that are ubiquitous, that are found in the soil of England, Egypt, America, France, Greece as in the hands of diaries and admiralty Icelanders, and just as rough stone knives are earlier than iron ones though the same race often uses both, so fetishism is more primitive than higher and purer faiths, though the same race often combines fetishism and theism, no one will doubt the truth of this where weapons are concerned, but Mr. Max Muller will not look at religion in this way, Mr. Max Muller's remarks on zoolatry, as de Brussels calls it, or animal worship, require only the briefest comment. De Brusses, very unluckily, confused zoolatry with other superstitions under the head of fetishism. This was unscientific, but is it scientific of Mr. Max Muller to discuss animal worship without any reference to totemism? 
the worship of sacred animals is found, in every part of the globe, to be part of the sanction of the most stringent and important of all laws, the laws of marriage. It is an historical truth that the society of Ashantis, Chatkas, Australians, is actually constructed by the operation of laws which are under the sanction of various sacred plants and animals. There is scarcely a race so barbarous that these laws are not traceable at work in its society, nor a people especially an ancient people so cultivated that its laws and religion are not full of strange facts most easily explained as relics of totemism. Now note that actual living totemism is always combined with the rudest ideas of marriage, with almost repulsive ideas about the family. Presumably, this rudeness is earlier than culture, and therefore this form of animal worship is one of the earliest religions that we know. The almost limitless distribution of the phenomena, their regular development, their gradual disappearance, all point to the fact that they are all very early and everywhere produced by similar causes. Of all these facts, Mr. Max Muller only mentions one that many races have called themselves snakes, and he thinks they might naturally adopt the snake for ancestor. And finally for God, he quotes the remark of Diodorus that the snake may either have been made a god because he was figured on the banners, or may have been figured on the banners because he was a god, to which Debrusses, with his usual sense, rejoins we represent saints on our banners because we revere them, we do not revere them because we represent them on our banners. In a discussion about origins, and about the corruption of religion, it would have been well to account for institutions and beliefs almost universally distributed. We know, what the Brusses did not, that zoolatry is inextricably blent with laws and customs which surely must be early, if not primitive, because they make the working faith of societies in which male descent and the modern family are not yet established. Anyone who wishes to show that this sort of society is a late corruption, not an early stage in evolution towards better things, has a difficult task before him, which, however, he must undertake, before he can prove zoolatry to be a corruption of religion, as to the worship of ancestral and embodied human spirits, which it has been so plausibly argued is the first moment in religion, Mr. Max Muller dismisses it, here, in eleven lines and a half, an isolated but important allusion at the close of his lectures will be noticed in its place. The end of the polemic against the primitiveness of fetishism deals with the question, whence comes the supernatural predicate of the fetish? If a Negro tells us his fetish is a god, whence got he the idea of God? Many obvious answers occur. Mr. Muller says, speaking of the Indians page 205, the concept of gods was no doubt growing up while men were assuming a more and more definite attitude towards these semi-tangible and intangible objects trees, rivers, hills, the sky the Sunday and so on, which he thinks suggested and developed, by aid of a kind of awe, the religious feeling of the infinite, we too would say that, among people who adore fetishes and ghosts, the concept of gods no doubt silently grew up, as men assumed a more and more definite attitude towards the tangible and intangible objects they held sacred, again, Negroes have had the idea of God imported among them by Christians and Islamites, so that, even if they did not climb as de Brosses grants that many of them do to pure religious ideas unaided, these ideas are now familiar to them, and may well be used by them, when they have to explain a fetish to a European. Mr. Max Muller explains the origin of religion by a term the infinite which, he admits, the early people would not have comprehended. The Negro, if he tells a white man that a fetish is a god, transposes terms in the same unscientific way. 
Mr. Muller asks, how do these people, when they have picked up their stone or their shell, pick up, at the same time, the concepts of a supernatural power, of spirit, of God, and of worship paid to some unseen being, but who says that men picked up these ideas at the same time, these ideas were evolved by a long, slow, complicated process, it is not at all impossible that the idea of a kind of luck attached to this or that object, was evolved by dint of meditating on a mere series of lucky accidents, such or such a man, having found such an object, succeeded in hunting, fishing, or war, by degrees, similar objects might be believed to command success, thus burglars carry bits of coal in their pockets, for luck, this random way of connecting causes and effects which have really no internal relation, is a common error of early reasoning. Mr. Max Muller says that this process of reasoning is far more in accordance with modern thought, if so, modern thought has little to be proud of. Herodotus, however, describes the process of thought as consecrated by custom among the Egyptians, but there are many other practical ways in which the idea of supernatural power is attached to fetishes. Some fetish stones have a superficial resemblance to other objects, and thus on the magical system of reasoning are thought to influence these objects. Others again, are pointed out as worthy of regard in dreams or by the ghosts of the dead. To hold these views of the origin of the supernatural predicate of fetishes is not to take for granted that every human being was miraculously endowed with the concept of what forms the predicate of every fetish. Thus we need not be convinced by Mr. Max Muller that fetishism though it necessarily has its antecedents in the human mind is a corruption of religion. It still appears to be one of the most primitive steps towards the idea of the supernatural. What, then, is the subjective element of religion in man? How has he become capable of conceiving of the supernatural? What outward objects first awoke that dormant faculty in his breast? Mr. Max Muller answers, that man has the faculty of apprehending the infinite that by dint of this faculty he is capable of religion, and that sensible objects, tangible, semi-tangible, intangible, first roused the faculty to religious activity, at least among the natives of India. He means, however, by the infinite which savages apprehend, not our metaphysical conception of the infinite, but the mere impression that there is something beyond, everything of which his senses cannot perceive a limit, is to a primitive savage or to any man in an early stage of intellectual activity unlimited or infinite. Thus, in all experience, the idea of a beyond is forced on men. If Mr. Max Muller would adhere to this theory, then we should suppose him to mean what we hold to be more or less true that savage religion, like savage science, is merely a fanciful explanation of what lies beyond the horizon of experience. For example, if the Australians mentioned by Mr. Max Muller believe in a being who created the world, a being whom they do not worship, and to whom they pay no regard for, indeed, he has become decrepit. Their theory is scientific, not religious. They have looked for the causes of things and are no more religious in so doing than Newton was when he worked out his theory of gravitation. The term infinite is wrongly applied, because it is a term of advanced thought used in explanation of the ideas of men who, Mr. Max Muller says, were incapable of conceiving the meaning of such a concept. Again, it is wrongly applied, because it has some modern religious associations, which are company.